Uh, yeah, Colossians chapter 4. A couple of things as we get started. First, just thinking about where we're going today into the service, where, where we're aiming at the, uh, after the sermon. We'll conclude the sermon today with more of an introspective, reflective prayer time. Sometimes we stand up and sing a song together, or we have a traditional come forward type invitation. Today we're going to end the sermon with a time of reflective prayer. Uh, there's a commitment that I would like you to make as a church, and we're going to have a chance to do that. And then after that prayer time, we're going to watch a video to reinforce what we've talked about, and that'll be the offering time. If you have one of those guests or prayer cards, you'll be able to put that in the offering plate. Equally so, if God's at work in your life in some way, you just need someone to talk to, you know that God is leading you toward salvation or baptism and you need someone to talk with, you can make a note on that card and put it in the offering plate at the end of the service or as immediately when we're finished with the service today, there'll be pastors down here at the front for you to be able to come and talk to. Just know that we want to be, be available for, for you and your family. The other thing I'd want to say before we read the verses and get into the sermon today is 12 years ago, and without exaggerating, almost to the minute, my wife and I were evacuating New Orleans, headed west on Interstate 10 with tens of thousands of other people uh, leaving because of Hurricane Katrina coming. And so I remember that feeling 12 years ago, and then you obviously you watch the news and see the pictures of what's happening on the Gulf, Gulf Coast and what's happening specifically even in Houston right now. And People have already asked me this morning, you know, are we going to be able to take a team down there? Almost certainly we'll be able to take a team and partner and we'll give you more information. Um, our little bit of experience of going through a disaster like that is there's the immediate response and then there's the response when everybody forgets and you move on to the next thing. And so I can't promise you we'll go to Houston as a church next week, but we will be engaged. Many of you have friends and family. I have friends and family down there, friends that pastor down that way. And so we'll, we'll be connected to what's going on down there. It, it may not be next week, but I can tell you if New Orleans was any lesson for us, the recovery happens long after the, uh, the press leave and you, you still need that help. So we want to be able to pray Pray for them. We're going to read Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and then we're going to pray together and, and jump into our time of, of studying God's Word. So here we go. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of scripture. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have rest. And so we come right now carrying a lot of baggage, carrying a lot of things with us, thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. But in Christ, we have found hope, and we have found peace, and we have found victory. And so, Father, I pray that you would show us today what we do as a result of that 
hope and peace and victory and rest. And God, we pray for the people along the Gulf Coast who are dealing with the flooding, uh, with the destruction from the hurricane. Father, we pray for the churches in that area as they are seeking to reach out to their people this morning. God, that you would bring churches and people together to not only meet physical needs, but spiritual needs as well. People's lives just turned upside down by something like this happening. And God, teach us this morning again what it means just to open our eyes to how you're at work. And God, that we would respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing on, just about to come to the end of a study in the book of Colossians, where we've been trying to understand what it is for the hope of Christ to be at work in our lives, for the hope of Christ to be at work in our churches, so we have victory in Christ, we have rest in Christ, like we talked last week with the Sabbath. We have that hope. As a result of that, then how do you live? Colossians chapter 3 in your Sunday school classes for the last couple of weeks has been answering that question. Colossians chapter four continues it. And so for the next two weeks, what we're trying to deal with is in light of victory, in light of hope, in light of rest in Christ, so what? What do we do next? How do you live out of that rest? Rest in Christ is not an excuse to live however you want or to live in perpetual leisure. It's, okay, what do I do as a result of that? And we're gonna be looking at that. As Christians, we often think about Sabbath rest associated with Sunday. Uh, there's one thing about Sunday, and it's that Monday always comes right after Sunday. Uh, this week on Facebook, we asked you for some of your favorite Monday memes and videos, and you did not disappoint. You, you pulled through. I don't have time to show all of them. You can go to our Emmaus Facebook page, and you can see all the uh, Monday memes and gifs or gifs, depending on how you want to pronounce that little video that pops up, but uh, all the things that showed up. I want to show you a couple that came in, though. You can't have, you know, the great theologians of the office. Uh, the force awakens, the force needs five more minutes. That's a pretty good one. One day on Mercury, 1,408 hours, same as one Monday. Oh, this is great right here. That little boy just pretty much sums up everything, and then the dog. It was Monday last week. <laughs> oh. I could really just sit there and watch that little girl fall on the table over and over. And there's some other funny ones that were right on the edge. I didn't know if I should show them this morning or not, but they were, uh, they were, they were pretty funny. My wife secretly sent me text messages of all the ones she didn't feel like she could post to Facebook, but were really funny. So uh, I've got a whole list of other options that, uh, that we looked at. So you, you have Sunday, and then like it or not, here comes Monday, the, the next day. How do you respond to that? How do you live out of rest thinking about Monday coming? What I'd like us to do, and I really hope, without overstating this, I really hope what we talk about this morning and, and what we're looking at up here can be a marker for our church moving forward. What I want to call you to as a church is that we would commit week after week for the remainder of 2017 and maybe further into the future that we would pray this Monday morning prayer together. Now, I have adapted this prayer. I've tweaked it from a ministry at New Orleans Seminary uh, that we were a part of down there, and so they use a prayer like this. I've changed it a little bit, tried to adapt it to the verses that, that are in front of us, but the prayer is very simple. Open a door, open my eyes, open my mouth. 
open a door, open my eyes, open my mouth. When you get to your locker on uh, Monday morning, have it there so you can pray this. When you get to the office and you're in the parking lot before you go in to work, pray this. When you wake up and you're having coffee with your neighbors or with your family, with your spouse, pray this. That this would be, for Emmaus, our Monday morning prayer to guide us. If we have rest in Christ, if we have victory in Christ, then God, open a door, open my eyes, open my mouth. What do we mean by that? Well, it's all right here in Colossians 4. I want to show you. All right, let's go back to Colossians 4. We're going to start in verse 2. Paul begins there in verse 2 with devote yourselves to prayer. Uh, Just really quickly, on yourselves, he's been talking to different groups of people, starting back in chapter 3, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 4, verse 1. He addresses different groups of people. In verse 2 of chapter 4, when he says devote yourselves, he's gone back to the whole congregation. So he's no longer talking to just husbands or wives or kids or masters. He's gone back to talking to the whole congregation. The reason we know that is because there are certain word hooks that you find in chapter 3, verse 17, that show back up in this section. And so Paul will use these word connections to show that he's reconnecting with what he said before. So it's like he took a break in 3.18 to 4.1, And now in chapter 4, verse 2, he's gone back and he's devoting this to everybody. So this is not just to the masters or the slaves. This is to everybody. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. This idea of devote, in these verses, you really have two commands. Or if you're a grammar nerd, you have two imperatives. Two commands that are given here, two imperatives. One shows up in verse 2. One shows up in verse 5, so it kind of falls into two parts, but the first here is devote. The word devote has the idea of continue, the idea of endurance. So when Paul says to devote yourselves to prayer, the idea that he has here is it's not just a one-time thing. It's over and over. It's endurance in prayer. It's consistency in prayer. It's continuing to pray even when you're not sure, what am I doing? The best way to explain this is the parable that Jesus tells of the friend who goes to his neighbor because he had some visitors come and he needs more bread. So he goes to his friend in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and knocks on the door and the friend is frustrated because he finally got his kids to sleep and he finally got settled down for the night and his neighbor has come over. Everybody needs in their life a neighbor who can show up at 2 o'clock in the morning and knock on your door and say, hey, I had some guests show up. Uh, We need some bread. Uh, My wife said that she had other ways that she might respond uh, to the friend that comes at 2 a.m. and asks for bread. You know, we have 24-hour groceries that you could visit, but at that time, they didn't have that. And so what do you do? They continue to knock. They continue to need help. And so the friend answers. In most of our homes, it's, dad, 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 or mom, 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 mom. And that's just your teenagers. That's not even your kids. But like they just, they continue to ask over and over. Our five-year-old, she lives to play tag. And so sometimes I play tag just so she'll stop asking. That's really the main reason. And so you ask and you ask and you ask. That's the idea in Colossians 4 too. Devote yourselves to prayer consistently with endurance, over and over, coming back to this idea. 
Why is it so important? Because more than we realize, prayer reveals what we really believe and prayer shapes our lives. So if we're not careful, and, and by we, I'm really just talking to me, prayer can seem disconnected from the rest of your life. So you have kind of your prayer life, and some people are really good at it. The rest of us really struggle with it. You have prayer, and then you have everything else that you do. And prayer doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Prayer feels very passive. The rest of your life feels very active. What we don't realize, and we have to be so careful about, is prayer shapes the rest of our lives more than we actually realize. Because if we're not devoted in prayer, what we're really saying deep down, and we don't always mean this, what we're really saying is, I've got this. I've got this under control. I know what I'm living for. But as we pray, the things we pray for and that endurance in prayer begins to shape our life more than we actually realize up front. And so I like this idea. Uh, I saw this in a sermon from, from Piper, but I like the idea. He says that prayer is one of those things that the more you do it, the more strength you find in it. And the less you do it, the more you find that power going away. So you've had those moments during the day where you look up at two o'clock in the afternoon and your cell phone is almost out of power. It's, you left your charger at home, you have no way to charge your cell phone. Imagine if cell phones worked in such a way that the more you used it, the more power you had in your battery. So you, how do you get power? You use it. Well, we realize phones don't work that way, but prayer does. The more you pray, the more you find yourself driven to prayer. Then, just like a muscle will atrophy if you don't use it, prayer works exactly the same way. The less we pray, the less we find ourselves praying. And it becomes this cycle, and it becomes a cycle that's very difficult to get out of. And so Paul is calling them to devote themselves to prayer. But for what purpose? For what purpose does he say? It's very simple. That God will open up to us a door for the word. The reason Paul is asking the people to pray is so that a door will be opened. Now, to make sense of this, you have to remember that Paul is writing from prison. So there's a chance. There's a chance that by opening a door, Paul literally means he wants the prison door to open so that they can get out and continue on with their ministry. But I don't actually think that's what Paul is going after. And there's two reasons behind that. The first is, Almost every time you find a reference to open door in Scripture, it's referring to missions or evangelism. Let me give you a few examples on the screen. Acts 14. They began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16.9. A wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, and he begins to tell about the ministry he did there. Now, if we're not careful, and, and I don't mean to, to mock this or make light of it, but if we're not careful in our churchy language, we use open a door to refer to making life decisions. Or we say really strange things like, well, God opened a door, so he's going to open a window. That language is okay, I guess. The problem is when Scripture talks about opening a door, it's not talking about making life decisions, or it's not talking about following path X or Y. When Scripture talks about a door being open, the purpose is evangelism. The purpose is the advancement of the gospel. The purpose is that people would hear who would not otherwise hear. So I don't want to go through a particular door because it's going to be advantageous to me. In Scripture, a door opens so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would enter in and that God's people would carry the word through that door. 
And so Paul is not concerned about whether the prison door opens or not. How do we know that? Philippians 1. Look at these verses out of Philippians 1, chapter 12, or verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, meaning being in prison, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul is not particularly concerned about whether the prison door opens. He's not saying, God, open the prison door or open a prison window. He's just saying, I want to see the gospel go forward. Whether I'm in prison or out of prison, all that matters is that the gospel advances. And so he's calling the Colossians to pray for that. Devote yourselves to prayer so that the gospel will go forward. Why does a door need to be open? Why does a door need to be open for evangelism? Because evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus, is not about converting someone to your way of thinking. It's not about selling them something. It's about God opening their heart to faith. It's about God softening their heart to respond in faith and obedience and worship. And so if you're here this morning, I want to say, stop for a second and say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you came with family or you're curious about the things of the Lord, but you're not really sure about following Jesus, and you're hearing people talk about how they're going to talk to you about the things of the Lord, I understand the awkwardness that come with that, but hear me out on something. Our approach to talking to you about Jesus is not because we think Jesus is one option among many. Our approach to you is not that you would join our club. It's not that you would buy something we're trying to sell you. It's none of those. It's that with Jesus comes life and hope and forgiveness and peace and rest, and that's a work that only God can do in your life. I'm always reminded that if I can talk somebody into something, the next person can come along and talk them out of it. So if my job is to talk somebody into being a Christian, that's no good because somebody else can come along and talk them right out of it. But if it's a work that God does in their life, and that's why Paul says a door has to be open for this to happen so that then the gospel will move forward. What happens as a result of that? Well, you go back to Colossians 4 verse 2, he talks about so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. The reason a door has to be open is because the good news of Jesus is in some sense a mystery. Now kids, if you can see the screen and read pretty well, underlined up there is mystery of Christ. When you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's not mystery in the sense of riddle. It's not like this puzzle that you're trying to solve. When the Bible uses the word mystery and you see that word, what it means is something that has to be uncovered that you couldn't have figured out on your own. And so it, it's, it's like the uh, present that has to be unwrapped in some sense to be understood. Humans would not have come up with this on their own. They wouldn't have figured this out or discovered it. It's something that had to be revealed. It was unseen, but through Jesus we're able to see it. And so that's the reason we don't go to sell somebody religion. We don't need to talk them into it because at its core, it's this mystery of what God does in a person's life that has to be opened up to them. And so we are praying that a door would be open because that's the only hope for the gospel to go forward. How does it go forward? It goes through partnerships. He says, pray for us as well. Paul knows that they're praying with him and for him 
is not just a nice thing to write on his missionary support letter that he sends out. He's not doing that. He knows that when they pray, they are partners in the gospel. And here's something really neat that happens. When you pray that someone else would have a door open so they can share the gospel, what very quickly happens in your own life is you starting to see doors open in your own life. And so as you pray for missionaries, as you pray, pray for friends, as you pray for family, you're praying about this, and Paul knows, and ultimately the Lord knows, that as you pray about those things, that is shaping your heart. That's shaping your mind, and all of a sudden these doors are starting to open that you never saw before because God is doing that work in your life. Charles Spurgeon compares it to Christians being on a rescue boat and rowing together. If there's only one person rowing, it's going to be a very short, very sad trip. You're not going to get very far, but if you're in this together, rowing together in prayer, that lifeboat is able to go out and rescue people. It's able to go out and get the gospel there. So we are praying, God, open a door. Here's the second thing we're praying. We're praying, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes. There in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it mentions this idea of devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert, and then it goes on to talk about conduct yourself to wisdom. That idea of keeping alert, it does have the idea of literally staying awake. It, it is connected to that, but it's more just keeping your eyes open to what's happening in the world. It's even used in reference to being aware of Christ's coming. So you are watchful, you're alert, you see what's happening in the world so you'll know how to, ex how, how to respond. It's embarrassing to fall asleep on the job. You guys know that. You know how that works. I, uh, when we were there in New Orleans and I was working at the financial aid office for the seminary and going through the PhD uh, process and pastoring at church, I wasn't sleeping very much. And, and many of you know how that works. And so I was in the financial aid office as the director one afternoon. And about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, things got really hazy uh, when I was there, there at work. And so I remember things being hazy, and then I remember that head pop that you do, you know, the, like you need to go to the chiropractor because it, your head pops up so fast, and I look up, and our second-in-command administrator for the entire seminary is standing in my doorway. The first question you always want to say is, you never come to my office. Why did you come at this moment? Like, and the second question you ask is, how long have I been sleeping? <laughs> like, when you look at the clock and think, oh my word, Dr. Lipke just showed up and he may have been watching me sleep for the last 30 minutes for all I know. It's embarrassing when you've been given a job and you fall asleep on the job. And so we are called to be watchful, not just physically to stay awake, but spiritually to stay awake. Scripture talks consistently about this idea of being watchful. I put a couple of verses up here, but... You could run through your Bible and find probably a dozen pretty quickly. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus tells um, there in the garden as he is about to be betrayed, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Ephesians 5, wake up, sleeper. Parents, memorize that one. Uh, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, very important connection. When scripture uses wake up, be watchful, almost every time it connects it to how we live our life. 
So open my eyes in scripture means open my eyes to how I live. Go back to Colossians 4 really quick, and it, this becomes immediately evident. When you go back to Colossians 4 there, after he talks about keeping alert, he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom. So when I'm awake, when my eyes are open, I'm thinking about, Lord, how can I live my life in a way that's worthy of you? How can I live my life in a way that matches the will of God? What, what does this have to do with evangelism? What does this have to do with sharing the gospel? When God opens a door for you, the way you live your life will determine whether or not you're able to walk through that door and speak to the person on the other side. Here's what I mean. Being a jerk will get the door shut in your face almost every time. And so when scripture talks about evangelism, Paul will say live in a way that is respectful. Live in a way that shows you care about others. Live in a way that when the door is open, that person wants to hear what you have to say because you're a person of wisdom. You're a person who lives in a way that makes them curious, why does that person live that way? Even this idea of a church, when people come to church, we know they're gonna trip over the gospel. The gospel is the mystery of Christ. The gospel is offensive but we don't want them tripping over us before we have a chance to speak to them about the gospel. So the way we gather together, the way we live together, the way we live our lives during the week, we're trying to display Jesus so that someone will want to know who he is and why he matters. And so Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom. And then he uses that word outsiders. I'm really concerned about the word outsiders because of the political and social climate we, we live in. I'm not embarrassed that it's in scripture. I just think it can cause confusion. Remember that the Colossians, as Christians, were not the oppressive majority. They were the oppressed minority. There was a few of them. And so when they're talking about outsiders, they're talking about everyone else in the world around them who oftentimes are making their life very difficult. And so when we use outsiders sometimes in modern day language, especially 21st century America, it can have this idea of outsiders is all about cutting ourselves off from everybody else. That's not the way it's used here, and it's not the way it's used in scripture. Outsiders means I care about them, I live with them, I love them, I fling the doors wide open so that we're able to have interaction. When Paul talks about conduct yourself with wisdom toward the outsiders, he's not saying cut yourself off from everybody different than you. He's saying live in a way that they're curious about how you live. For what result? That you would make the most of the opportunity. Make the most, that phrase in the original language means to buy up everything. So imagine going into a store, and I can't imagine a better example than what has happened in hurricane zones or what you sometimes see happen in Oklahoma with severe weather uh, events where you walk in and the shelves are bare because people have bought up everything. You buy up everything when there's a sense of urgency. You buy up everything when you say, I have to have this in order to keep going. I have to have this to make the most of it. Uh, there was not an all to make light of what they're having to deal with in Houston, but there was a funny picture that showed up on social media where someone had gone into a store and everything was bought up except the Lay's potato chips that were chicken and waffle flavored. And there was this entire row of chicken and waffle flavored Lay's chips and everything else in the entire store was built, bought up. So that may say something about those, about those chips. But this word right here, 
means to buy up everything, to make the most of it. It gives a sense of urgency. So I live, and if this word is helpful, use it. I live intentionally. I want to live intentionally. I want to live on purpose. I don't want to waste the opportunities. I don't want to waste the time that God has placed in front of me. I want to buy that up, make the most of it. For what result? That then I can open my mouth. So God opened a door, then open my eyes so I live in a way that displays Jesus, so I make the most of what you placed in front of me, and then God opened my mouth. And, and we should probably say, open my mouth if I'm gonna say something that's helpful, or open my mouth most of the time. Open my mouth in the sense that I wanna speak in the right way. You go back to Colossians chapter two there and devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, and then he says, let your speech always be with grace. He's beginning to talk to them about when you open your mouth, what should it sound like? If you are a thankful person, that will go a long way to speaking about the hope of Christ. Philippians 2, Paul tells the people if they want to shine like stars in a dark world, the way you do that is you don't complain and you don't grumble. If you have a thankful spirit, that goes a long way. Why this idea of thankfulness? What do they have to be thankful for? Well, they've been rescued from the domain of darkness and they've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son and as a result of that, they have the inheritance of the saints, those who are a part of God's people. And so Paul is saying when you're buying up the time, when you're living with this sense of urgency, do it not as those who are losing, do it as those who have won everything that really matters. Do it from this overflow of thankfulness. So God, when you open my mouth, let me be a thankful person. Which leads into that next word, grace. The word grace can reflect God's grace that he gives us, but it also means just being a gracious person. The best way that I know to describe the speech of a Christian is that it should be life-giving. Grace, God, open my mouth so that when I, would, when I speak, it gives life. The opposite of that is I open my mouth and it sucks the life out of the room or it sucks the life out of the situation. God, let me be someone who opens my mouth and it gives life to someone. It points them to Christ. It reflects this gracious, thankful, rested spirit that I have in Christ. And then he describes it as seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt, there were kind of two meanings in the ancient world. One was just don't be bland. When you talk about the things of God, don't be tedious. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Speak in a way that it's not abstract. But I also learned this last week, and this is the reason it's so important to study ancient documents and understand what's going on in Scripture. In the ancient world, and I really didn't know this until this last week, but in the ancient world, the idea of salt was connected to the idea of wisdom. So you go back to some of the early writings, and when they're talking about the Torah, or they're talking about wisdom, they use salt to describe that, that when you have your uh, speech seasoned with salt, it means you speak in a wise way. But not just a wise way, remember that wisdom literature in scripture, or wisdom literature in the ancient world, is all about using these word pictures, or using these metaphors. An example of this would be in the New Testament when Jesus tells parables. Or when Paul is writing his letters and he'll use these very concrete images. What this means is when you speak about the things of Christ, when you speak about being a Christian, be careful about being abstract. 
uh, be careful about trying to sound super spiritual. Tell stories. Use everyday imagery that people understand. Meet people where they are. Part of having your conversation seasoned with salt means you speak in a way that people can receive it. You speak in a way that people can make sense of it. If we speak about the things of the Lord and someone stares at us glassy-eyed because it had no salt on it, that's not their fault. That's the fact that we didn't speak in a way that they were able to make sense of it. Tell stories. Use pictures. There's, use video. Use cultural. Use something so that when you speak about the Lord, it has a specific concrete nature to it. Which leads to the last part there. So you'll know how to respond to each person. Those of you that are not Christians who are here this morning could speak better to this than, than I could right now. But nothing turn someone off to the things of the Lord more than a canned presentation that they know is canned. So if you just speak to every person in the same way because that's the religious spiel that we've been told to give, people pick up on that really quickly. And you know what is even worse? The person feels like a project, not a person. Scripture says when you're going to speak to them about the things of the Lord, speak to that person. Speak to them in a way that says, I care about you. I'm not coming with a canned presentation just because I feel obligated to tell you religious things. I'm coming because God has done such a work in my life. He has opened a door. He has opened my eyes. And I want him to open my mouth so that you will know how good he is. And so you're speaking to that person. And 1 Peter 3 says to do it in such a way that you do it with gentleness and respect. Because people are able to tell the difference really quickly when it feels canned and it feels like you're just treating them like a project. So let's look again uh, as we get ready to wrap up. Let's look again at that prayer just, just for a moment as we, as we finish. God, would you open a door? Would you open my eyes? Would you open my mouth? I want to speak about the things of you. I'm going to be able to do that if I've lived a life that shows the difference you've made in me. I want to do that when I live a life that's intentional that's focused on the things of you. And I can only do that if you're the one opening a door to make that happen. These words, they're not magical. But what they will do is if you will commit to pray these every Monday, or better yet, pray these every morning, what you'll find happening is you'll find yourself going through your day in a completely different manner. And I'll tell you from personal experience, from someone who has tried to do this, recently, that looks really simple, but you'll find yourself stammering in prayer if you're anything like me. So, so here's Owen this last week as he knows he's going to have to stand in front of you guys this morning talking about this. Okay, God, this isn't so hard. It's Monday morning. Would you open a door? Uh, actually, come to think of it, maybe don't open the door too wide because then I'm going to be called on whether I really believe this or not. Um, this is me thinking out loud as the preacher on Monday morning. God, I really do want you to open a door, but I'm really not sure how much I want you to open a door. And, and open my eyes, and then I start to look around at what's going on in my family and my life, and I'm thinking, oh man, sometimes I just want my eyes to close. God, open my mouth. Actually, you know what? Maybe it's easier just to live a good life and not have to tell anybody about the things. You will find yourself battling to pray this because it's a spiritual battle. Because you're not going out to sell anything. You're not going out to convert anybody. You're going out with the mystery of Christ. 
that in his goodness and grace he has come to us so that we would be rescued from darkness and brought into light, that we would experience true and eternal life, and as a result of that hope and victory and peace, that we would devote ourselves to prayer, that we would give ourselves to the mission of Christ. Would you pray with me as we get ready to wrap up? We're gonna spend the next couple of minutes. I just want you to take a moment before you head out of the building. I just want you to take a moment and think about that prayer. God, open a door. Where do you see God at work in your life? And as you pray that, open a door Let me encourage you during the week, tomorrow morning, when you pray this prayer, don't just pray that for yourself. Pray it for others. God, open a door for my friend who I know is building a relationship with someone who's not a believer. God, open a door for that missionary couple that we know who is starting a new church. God, open a door, and as you're praying for others, it's just going to circulate right back to yourself. And God, open a door for me. Where do you see God at work in your life? And then, God, open my eyes to how I'm living. You might have to admit that you've been sleepwalking through life, that you go day to day, but you really haven't been paying attention to what's going on around you. You haven't been thinking about the way your life would display the things of Christ. Use this as a time to recommit. God, I want to live with my eyes open. I want to live in a way that people are able to experience your goodness through me, I don't want to waste opportunities. As you're praying this, that God would show you those opportunities and you would buy them up. You would spend the money. You would spend the time. You would take advantage. Don't let those times go by. And that God would open your mouth. You say, I don't know what to say. It's not a canned presentation. It's speaking about the good news of Jesus. And that you would do that with a thankfulness and a grace and a salt and you would speak to that person because you love them not because they're some sort of project if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus I hope that this morning has given you a better understanding about how God works in our lives when we wrap up in a few minutes I would love to tell you more about that mystery of Christ about how God's at work in your life My prayer for Emmaus is that we would not be a place content to stay right where we are, but that God would send us out, that we would be able to share the gospel with neighborhoods and nations. And it starts with a simple devotion to prayer. God, make us a church that prays not just for physical healing, but for spiritual healing. God, if you answered every prayer on a prayer request sheet at Emmaus, what would happen as a result of that? Would people come to faith in Christ? Would missionaries be sent out? Would lives be transformed? It's not bad to pray for physical elements, but God, draw us beyond that. God, open a door for the advancement of the gospel. Open our eyes as a church. Open our mouth as a church that we would proclaim good news. Father, thank you for these people. God, thank you for the love they show me and my family and the way you bring our lives together. 
And God, send us out with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.